Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Man, I love that. We are Easter people. We should get t-shirts with that on the front. That's awesome. We are Easter people. Well, I actually was born in Orlando, Florida and live not far from Disney World at all. And when I was growing up, um, someone bought my dad and my mom two season passes to Disney World. And so once a month, my dad would take us to Disney World and it was wonderful. And so that was always a special thing for me as a kid. And so when my kids were now in the picture, I, I was like, I want them to experience this too. So we took, when the kids were younger, we took them to Disney World. Now, if you've been there, you know that like every day, several times throughout the day, they'll have a Disney parade. Have you, has anyone seen the Disney parade? It's really awesome, right? It's really rousing. It's, it's wonderful. This music is playing. People are dancing. Um, and I was really getting caught up in the whole thing. And then I started listening to what they were saying. And I found that they used the same four words over and over again. And it was dream, celebration, it was believe in magic. If you would just dream your dreams and celebrate all your dreams, if you just believe it, there'll be magic and your dreams will come true. And I found myself like getting into what was occurring, but then like um, I, I just stopped to listen to that and I realized you're not saying anything at all. <laughs> like you're just saying the same words over and over again. And I realized that those words were really empty. Because it was like, well, what are you believing in? Just believing in belief? I stopped to think about that, and it struck me that for many people, that their belief in things of faith sometimes can feel very similar to that. They can have just as much substance. You know, is, is it just belief and belief? Is it just faith and faith? Or is there something actually more to it than that? Specifically, when it comes to things of, of Jesus and the gospel, and salvation, is it, just, is it just belief and belief? Is it just faith and faith? What do we have to stand on? We're in a series called Skeptical, and I just want you to think about the definition of what skeptical actually means. It means to not be easily convinced, to have doubts or reservations, and that really describes many folks as they think about things of faith and, and religion. Because for many people, all they've heard, all they've experienced was just like that Disney parade. Just believe in belief. Just have faith in faith and your dreams will come true. Just close your eyes. Neglect the intellect. Neglect ra uh, being r rational. If you would just believe, it would all make sense. And so that makes some people just scratch their head and say, I'm just kind of skeptical about that. And if that's you, I don't blame you because that's a really narrow and unconvincing thought process. Like, is there more to our faith than just that? And, and the thing is this, as you peer deeply into what we believe and why we believe it and where that comes from, I actually think there's a tremendous amount to stand on. And our faith is not just close your eyes and believe. It's eyes wide open, it's trustworthy. It's confidence. Here's the thing. Sometimes I've seen Christians react to outside voices, other worldviews that may want to speak into our culture, or maybe even into our children's culture, and there's fear about that. Like, if this speaks into their thought process, the foundation that we've given them won't hold firm. 
And so there's fear about that. And I think that comes because Christians, we don't often think through critically and rationally what we believe and why we believe it. But truth is, it's solid and it's firm. So we don't have to be afraid. And furthermore, if you're a Christian, if you're going to stand up for your faith, if you're going to be bold about who Jesus is, you have to know what you stand on if you're going to stand up for your faith. Now, when we think about things that people might be skeptical about, one of the dominant things that causes skepticism is this issue. It's very core to what we believe, and it's that Jesus, is he actually divine? Is Jesus actually God? What I want to do this weekend is I just want to look at some of the major worldviews, how they think about these things, consider that critically, and then maybe just say why we believe that Jesus is divine, why he is the son of God. And my hope and desire would be that we can be equipped then to inform our own sources of skepticism, to equip our own children as they process their faith and to be able to converse with people in our community that we rub shoulders with in an intelligible kind of way. That would be my objective. So I want to first look at three kind of categories of people that would say, you know what, I don't believe that Jesus is divine. I don't believe this to be true. The first category is this. It's major world religions. Major world religions. They would say, you know, Jesus, he's a great model. He's a great teacher. He's a great example. But come on, really? Was divine? You think he's like God, the son? Like, come? Really? So these would be individuals like... Um, like Muslims, and we'll talk about that in just a second, but I had another occurrence with someone a few months ago where I got a phone call, I was at my desk, and she picks up the phone and says, hey, I want to just let you know that there's going to be a conference in the area talking about biblical interpretation. I had no, she's not on my caller ID, I didn't know the person, a lovely lady, her name was Doreen, and I'm like, well, this is interesting. So as she's talking, I'm looking it up on my computer because I just happened to be in study mode where I literally had the Greek New Testament up in front of me in Google <laughs> right there. And so I looked it up, and as I looked at it, it, it occurred to me that this was actually the Jehovah's Witness that was, that was calling me. And, and so I said, Doreen, I really thank you for inviting me uh, to this event. Uh, I just want to pause right there because I think we would have a very different view about who we would fundamentally understand Jesus to be and his character and his identity. And that then engaged in a lengthy conversation with Doreen uh, about the text and, and uh, we, went, we went back and forth about that. She believed and the Jehovah's Witness believe that Jesus, that he's God's servant, uh, that he's very influential, that he had a lot of good to say, that we have a lot to gain from, from listening to him. But they would say that he is not God, uh, he's not God the Son, that he's not divine, that he's simply a good teacher. So let me ask you, if you were to have Doreen walk in a knock on your front door or, or call you, and she were to say that, say, you know, th this, is, this is, we don't believe he's God the Son, how would you interact with her? What would you respond to her? Would you know not just what you believe, but why you believe that. So that's what Jehovah's Witness think. Uh, Latter-day Saints or the Mormons, their, their belief is very uh, fascinating. Um, they, they would believe that Lucifer, the one that we know as Satan or the devil, and Jesus were actually, um, actually made at the same time. They were both angelic creatures, 
One of them, Lucifer, rebelled against God and Jesus went along with what God wanted. So God said, hey, you're my man and Lucifer, you're not. But they would say that Jesus and Lucifer are made at the same time, right? That they're the same kind of being. And then God eventually said, because Jesus, you're doing good things, I'm going to elevate your status. And uh, so that's what, that's what the Mormons believe on top of some other things. And then there's, there's Muslims. There are 1.9 million Muslims in the world. What do they believe about Jesus being divine? So I've got a, a short video. It's only about a minute and a half long, but in my research, I found it. It's a gentleman named Dr. Zakir Naik, and he is responding to someone who stood up in this conference to a room full of Muslims and said, I believe that Jesus is my source of peace, that he is the son of God. Listen to his response. Play this one pretty loud there too, Ted, because it's a little I love Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. I respect him and I revere him. Now you told me Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, is God. I challenge you to point out a single verse in the Bible, a single unequivocal verse from the Bible, a single unambiguous verse in which Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, himself says that I am God, or where he says worship me, and I am ready to accept Christianity. You said Jesus is God. As far as Muslims are concerned, Islam is the only non-Christian faith which makes it an article of faith to believe in Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. No Muslim is a Muslim if he does not believe in Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. We believe that he was one of the mightiest messengers of Almighty God. We believe that he was the Messiah, translated Christ. We believe that he gave life to the dead with God's permission. We believe he healed those born blind and lepers with God's permission. The Muslims, the Christians, they are going together. But the parting of ways is, as you said, that most of the Christians, they believe that Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, claim divinity. There is not a single unequivocal statement in the complete Bible where Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, himself says that I am God or where he says worship me. If you can point out, I am ready to accept Christianity. Now, did you hear what he had to say? He said that Islam is the only non-Christian uh, major world religion that believes that you have to follow Jesus, that you have to believe in Jesus in order to be an actual Muslim. He said that, that Muslims would believe, uh, would, would say that, that, Jesus was, um, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Jesus did amazing things by God's permission. But he said uh, you, you, that there's nowhere in scriptures where Jesus says, I am God, worship me. He said, if you can find a verse that says that, I will... I will worship God. That's how, how he responded. How would you respond to that? Where would you go? How would you interact with him? So major world religions, and there's certainly more than that, but those are the three of the major, major things we might have conversations about. A second group would be this, would be new age arguments. This is a very popular, like in, in Western culture, people like Oprah Winfrey have made it very co uh, popular. They would say this, they would say Jesus is an enlightened teacher. Uh, he had great moral teachings. He's a, a, a great uh, kind of enlightened spiritual guru. He has an enlightened state. They wouldn't say that he is divine. They would say, well, he's divine, but he's divine the same way that you and I are divine because we're all divine. We all have that spark of the divine within us, but Jesus is no different than us. The issue for these thinkers 
uh, is that they, they question whether or not Jesus is God. That's within major world religions. The third category would be the secular front. So these would be secular historians. As a matter of fact, there's a group of people who have done what's called the, the search for the historical Jesus, and it started all the way back in the 1700s, continues through this day, in fact, including something called the Jesus Seminar that happened in the 70s. And their goal was largely to detach the historical Jesus, to understand the historical Jesus, show him rooted in history, but then they would deny the miracles of the Gospels or the divinity of Christ himself. No one would ever think, hey, Jesus didn't actually exist. They're not arguing that that did or didn't happen. The issue for them was to show that he's rooted in history and not rooted in divinity. Most of them deny that he was God or that he even claimed to be God. In fact, this last week and a half as I'm sitting around, and it's Easter time, so I've said this before, but many times during Easter, you'll start seeing uh, Jesus on magazine racks and Time Magazine and Discovery Channel and stuff. So I'm, I'm like looking for streaming video, and I saw a video title, and it was called When, God, uh, when Jesus Became God. I thought, well, let's watch that. And it was an author that I had already had exposure to. It's a gentleman named Dr. Bart Ehrman. And what he does is he claims, he claims that the story of Jesus becoming divine was the result of a long period of time where his disciples, um, you know, they would, they would play the whisper down the lane, and by the time it got 100, 150 years later, that they would they would say they, they, they became to understand who Jesus was in kind of a mythological sense, that it had been so exaggerated that the historical Jesus was separate from how these disciples were now claiming him to be divine. In fact, his statement was this, that there is nowhere in the New Testament where Jesus claims, I am God. Same way that the Muslims said that as well. So, how did Jesus become God? He seeks to answer that question. And the thing is this, from the secular to the religious, from the secular to the religious, they might differ from each other, but they all agree in denying Jesus' claim to actually be God. They would all say that he was simply a man and nothing else. Theologian J.I. Packer, he may be right, he says this, he says, the real difficulty the supreme mystery which, with which the gospel confronts us may not lie in the Good Friday message of the atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of the incarnation. He says, if Christianity has this wrong, it has everything wrong. But if it has it right, then the world should sit up and take notice. They may be on the very wrong path indeed. So how would you... If you sat down with Dr. Bart Ehrman, if you sat down with a friend, sat down with a Muslim, and they said, I don't believe Jesus is God. I don't believe he even claims to be God. How would you answer that? Does Jesus claim to be divine? And then why do we believe that to be true? What I want to do is I want to go through two evidences, I think, that are meaningful uh, kind of responses to those critiques. And then I'll land with what, where, where, we, where we land and why. The evidence number one, evidence number one that we would say that this is why Jesus is divine is because the early church, the early church believed that he was divine. Now, one of the common objections for those people that are looking critically at the New Testament is this, especially by this Bart Ehrman gentleman, is that Jesus' divinity was assumed by the disciples after hundreds of years had gone by. 
Hundreds of years have passed, and now they're finally pulling together the Bible, and now they finally tell this story about how they believe Jesus to be divine. And it was exaggerated by time. It turned and morphed into mythology. But one of the things that we, we talked about even last week was while the disciples were still with Jesus, the eyewitness accounts record that they believed that he was divine itself. So Thomas, the most skeptical of all the disciples, last week we talked about this, that he said, when he responded to Jesus, seeing the holes in his hands and the, the, spear, the spear hole in his side, he returned, he responded to Jesus saying, my Lord and my God. And in fact, in fact, what we read when we look at the New Testament is that the first books that were written were not even the accounts in the Gospels, but were actually the, the epistles to the early churches, especially the books of Galatians and Philippians. Well before the Gospel accounts were written, we have recordings of Paul writing to these Christians. And in Philippians chapter 2, what we have recorded is one of the earliest worship songs that the church sang. It was the hymn, and this is what that hymn says in Philippians chapter 2 says this, God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ, listen, is Lord, hang on to that word, he is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. They thought from the very beginning, from the very beginning that Jesus was divine when Jesus was with him shortly after he left as well. And I find this really interesting. We have to keep this in mind that the language that you and I use is not going to be the same language that they would have used. They're first century Jews, they're first century Christians. And we generally speak of the divine in very pedestrians and casual terms. So people will even use God's name in vain, right? We'll speak of it perhaps in propositional statements like if-then statements, like we believe this to be true. But for them, they would have spoken of God in very unique ways. Not only not in propositional statements, but they would have understood him in relational and impactful terms. So how does this relationship impact me? So for example, he, they would say he is our Lord, as those Christians said. A Lord is a master, someone that has authority. They're saying because he is divine, this is what's true in my life. It would refer to God as Father as well. This is what they say. They say every tongue is going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. From the very beginning, that was the song that they would have taught their children that would have been passed among the churches. The divinity of Christ was celebrated openly and plainly. And, it, and they were so committed to it, again, as we said last week and in the weeks in the past, that they were so committed that they went to the point of martyrdom because they believed that Jesus was God's son. So that's what the church believes. But then there's this critique that Jesus never said I am God, that he never said I am God. That Dr. Naik, he said, if you can show me where Jesus says that, I will worship him myself. What do you think? What do you think? Did Jesus ever say that? Would you be surprised to know that it's true? He never says those words, I am God. But there's a problem with that exact words criteria, that it works both ways. Because according to the Muslims, he is a prophet who does not desire to be worshiped. You'd by the same criteria have to prove that Jesus said, I am only a prophet, do not worship me. And he didn't say that either. 
We make the mistake of assuming Jesus would reveal things about himself the same way that we would in propositional statements. We assume that Jesus would say things like us and say things in ways that would satisfy our ways of thinking and determining truth. Yet if he had done so, his meaning would have been missed by his immediate audience of first century Jews. So while it's true that Jesus didn't put those words in that exact order, it's also irrelevant in the end because Jesus said way more than that. He said it in ways that made more sense to them than simply if-then statements. He made it in the context of their first century worldview and their understanding of the Old Testament and who God is. So I want to show you what I mean about that. Here are some of the claims, and I'm going to show them all to you on the, on the screen at one time. Here are just a portion of some of the claims that Jesus made about himself or ways that he acted in regard to himself. Here are some of these. You ready? Go ahead and put it up on the screen there, Eric. First, he claimed that he invented the Sabbath and that he had the authority to update the rules about observing it. He put his knowledge on par with God's. He claimed to be equal with God. He received worship from people, which, according to the Jewish law, was reserved for only the God himself. He claimed to have shared glory with God before the world existed. He assumed authority to forgive sins, which only God can do. He assumed the authority to judge the world, and one's attitudes toward him would define the, the judgment they received at the end of their lives. He claimed to be perfectly sinless. He claimed to have the power to raise himself from the dead. He claimed that to know him was to know God, and to see him was to see God, and to receive him was to receive God. He said he's the only way to heaven. And then I think this is one of the most significant things that he says in the book of John chapter 8. He says, when they're asking him, who are you? He says, I am. Am. Before Abraham was, I am. And he was referencing back to the Old Testament story when, when God and Moses were interacting at the burning bush. And Moses says, who should I tell them sends me? The way that God defines himself and his own self-existence, he says, tell them, I am, have sent you. These were not lightweight inferences. These were not lightweight things. These were major, major things. And I think, for me, one of the most compelling, one of the most compelling things is how Jesus continually referred to himself, especially in the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, Matthew is writing to a Hebrew crowd, and the most popular way that Jesus would talk about himself and his divinity was with the phrase, the son of man. You ever heard Jesus say that? The son of man? Now, when I was growing up, I always thought that was his way of saying, I'm a dude like you, <laughs> or like a, I'm a person. I, I didn't know what he meant. But actually, that's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, this great prophet has a vision of the end of times, the day of the Lord as the Israelites would have known it. And this is what Daniel chapter 7 says. It says, in my vision at night I looked, excuse me, and there before me was one, here it is, like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. Now that was a phrase that the Israelites used to talk about God as the God that's going to culminate all of history together in one glorious act of redemption and judgment. Notice how they spoke of him. It wasn't just God. It was a word that was rich in meaning, nuance, layered. They referred to him as ancient 
of days. It says that he approached the ancient of days. He was led into his presence. He, the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now listen, these were good monotheistic Jews, and they only ever worshipped the true God. So this is Jesus, and he's claiming, I am God, the Son of Man. And we miss that claim, but it didn't escape them one bit. In fact, they went on to kill him because he claimed to be one with the Father. Not, not because he was a rule breaker, but because he claimed to be equal with God himself. Jesus clearly claimed to be God. So why do we believe that to be true? To me, I, I think one of the most compelling passages comes from the book of John. The book of John, this is uh, the apostle John. He approaches the end of his life and he's thinking about this person who was his best friend and he's discipled people and he's told them about Jesus and other, many people have come together to bring an account of Jesus' life but he says, I'm not just gonna tell you about the account of Jesus' life. I'm, I'm going to tell you what it meant. And so he starts his gospel saying, how am I supposed to describe this person that I, I watched heal the sick and bring the dead back to life? And he himself came back from the life. How do I describe this person? And he starts out by saying this. In the beginning, just like Genesis, in the beginning, I think, how am I going to, how am I going to describe what Jesus was? He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word. The spoken Word of God, the Logos that spoke creation into being, this thing that revealed and was the representation of God Himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now, this is an aside, but as I sat on the phone with Doreen, Doreen said, well, did you know in John 1, it says the word was a God. I said, well, Doreen, I just happened to be looking at the Greek New Testament right in front of me. And in the Greek New Testament, there is no indefinite article A. It doesn't exist. It just says the word was God. The word was God. John later goes on to say Jesus was like a painter who painted this beautiful painting, this masterful work, and then he goes on to write himself into the painting, but those in the painting rejected him and scorned him and despised him, and then he sums it up this way in John chapter 1 verse 14, this is page 723 in the Orange Bibles, he says, the word, the revelation of God became flesh. He became flesh. He didn't just put on flesh. It's much less unambiguous than that, much more unambiguous than that. It's more scandalous. It was more shocking. I imagine that the heavenly hosts would, would read this and just be aghast about this, that God, the ancient of days, the one that's only ever been spirit, all of a sudden became something completely new. 
He became flesh. He made himself physical. He, he put on a body. He became God in a bod. And then it says this, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Say the word dwelling. Dwelling. We lose the nuance of that, of that word. But it wouldn't have been lost to those first century Christians. Because the word is the word skinu. And it, and it means to set up like a tent, to be in a tent. To be in a, a tent. It would have meant so much more than simply living in a house amongst us. But to them, they knew what that statement meant because in the Exodus account, the tent that God lived in was the tabernacle. And the way that God would reveal himself to his people was his presence in this tabernacle, in this place called the tent of meaning, a meeting, where the Shekinah glory of God would, for the first time in recorded history, would show up through the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, and God would meet with Moses. In Exodus 33, we're going to show this on the screen, you don't need to turn there, but it says this, as Moses went into the tent, the tent of meeting, the pillar of cloud would come down and would stay in the entrance while, Moses, uh, while the Lord spoke with Moses. Verse 11, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks with a friend. And, and I just imagine these Old Testament Jews hearing that the ancient of days would sit down and speak with a human being face to face. Just like you and I would have a conversation. And then later on, God would go to reveal his heart, his mind through the tablets of stone, how we connect with God, how we relate with one another, what it means to be right with God, how to live in community with one another. When someone gets out of community, how do we reconcile with one another? All of those things happened in this tent of meeting, this place where the presence of God came into the presence of man. And now God could not be just great and mighty and other and over there, but he could be present with his people. It was radical, it was new. So when John says that the word became flesh and tabernacled with us, tabernacled with us, this wasn't a small thing. This was how God, listen, this was how God was gonna connect with his people. This is how God was gonna reveal his heart and his mind to his people. This is how God was going to communicate what it means and what it looks like to follow after him, to how to live in community, how to reconcile when things get hard and tough, how to forgive one another, how to be gracious with one another. When God said, how am I going to reveal the fullness of who I am? What's the best way to do that? I'm going to tabernacle with my people. I'm going to put on flesh and I'm gonna dwell amongst them. Not in the abstract, but as concrete as it gets. Hebrews 1 tells us that in the past, God used to communicate through prophets in various ways and messengers in various times, but of late he has spoken to us through his son. He's revealed himself through his son. The word became flesh. God in a bod. 
This was scandalous to the Jews because God was always high and other and transcendent and far away. And when Moses and Joshua could enter the the tent of meeting, it was only ever for short durations. And even when Moses would meet with him, he would leave and his face would glow. And if he hadn't gone through this purification ritual, he could have lost his life. God was untouchable, unknowable largely. But now, now God would dwell amongst us. And now this, this God-man, we'd walk out in the street together and he'd say, hey, John, go grab that donkey. And I'd be like, sure thing, God. And then he'd, he'd wash my feet and we'd tell some jokes together and we'd go fishing. Like I, I saw it. I experienced it. It was scandalous to the Jews and it was scandalous to the Greeks because for the Greeks, the divine was always separate from the body. Any divine would never want to put on the body. That's the defiled thing. It was scandalous to both of them, but that's exactly what John was saying. The divine became flesh. For all time, it was changed. It was something new. And God the Son would exist within the form of a human nature for the rest of time. Within the confines of what that means for the rest of time. Full of its delights, full of its relational intimacies, He would experience things he could have never experienced before, things like hunger, things like abandonment, betrayal, things like anger, things like frustration. Always without sin, but he was able to experience what you and I experience on a daily basis. John says, we walk next to him. How do I know? How do I know that he was divine? Because I saw what he did. We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, he goes on to say. And then listen to these two words. Listen to how he describes God the son. He says he was full of grace and full of truth. He was full to the brim, overflowing with God's grace. The steadfast chesed, faithful love of God to his people, the compassion, the mercy, the restoring, the pursuing, full of grace, God's riches poured out upon us and full to the brim, overflowing with truth and justice and rightness so that the world would know not only the the presence of his absolute judgment, but would know his absolute love. And it wouldn't be only shrugging your shoulders saying, oh well, it's all forgiven, it all doesn't matter. No, he's full of truth. That means he's a righteous judge. And every injustice will someday be made just (laughs) and the people that you think man they got away with it will stand before the king of kings and the lord of lords full of grace and full of truth as well this was Jesus full to the brim of both and here's what Jesus causes us to do so unique amongst every worldview 
is he causes us to rethink and re-understand who God is and who God loves and what God wants from us and how we're made right in relationship with him. See, Jesus came and he, he defined the divine unlike anyone ever had. And Christianity then presents us with the craziest notion, and it's this, that what we can deduce about God is what we can deduce from what we know about Jesus. How do you know God? How do you know what he's like? You look at God the Son, and you say, what did he, what did he who did he like? And, and how did he get along with people? And what does he want from us? And what does it mean to forgive? And how do I extend a gracious hand upon those who are oppressing me? And how do I forgive that person again and again and again and again? We look at Jesus and we learn about God. We see that God welcomes the prodigal when he owns his odor and walks back to him, that he takes off his robes of dignity, puts on the, the robe of the shame of the son, and gives the son who didn't deserve honor, dignity and honor. We serve a God who refused to treat the poor and the marginalized as if they were second-class citizens. In fact, he said, it is the poor and it is the hungry and it is the destitute that acknowledge that before me that I will exalt and that are first in my kingdom. He's the God who lets in the last-minute decisions, the person who their whole life denied him. And in the last moment says, God, I believe in you. And the people that have been faithful their whole life look at that and scratch their head and they say, I've been faithful the whole time. And God says, I reward those who turn to me even at the last minute. And he looks at the thief on the cross who never had time to be baptized or give to church or show up at church or serve in Grace Kids or, or serve the poor or any of that stuff and says, today you will be with me in paradise. We serve a God who extends mercy. We serve a God who, who, who us, challenges us to rethink the boundaries of who we would say are off limits and would accept even those who are Gentiles and those that the Jews would say are unlovable and unworthy. Jesus says, come near to me, children. Come near to me. Jesus, what he does is this. He pulls back the curtains on not just what God would do, but who God is. How we can be right with him. How we can have relationship with him. Because the word became flesh. And I've just had enough conversations with people who would say, I don't know that I can believe in a God that I understand to be cruel. I don't know that I can believe in a God that let this happen or let that happen. And I would simply ask the question, which God are you believing in? And when someone says, I don't believe in God, I would say, well, which God don't you believe in? Do you not believe in the God of the Muslims? Do you not believe in the God of the Jehovah's Witness? Because here's what I know, my God, bow down to wash someone's feet. My God stopped in the middle of traffic when the woman who was diseased touched his cloak to give her dignity. And I understand you're processing who God is, but you need to know who God is. 
and the word became flesh and tabernacled and dwelled with us so that we could know the heart and the mind of God. And so that God could know the heart and the mind and the experience of us. Do you recognize how earth-shattering it is that the ancient of days would put on flesh and would suffer just like you and just like me? How category-busting that is that he would suffer alongside us. Author Mark Clark says this. He says, indeed, Jesus goes in and he enters into the pain of the world to fully identify with our lives in every way. When, the, when we ask the question of why God suffered on the cross, that the traditional theological answer sometimes misses the fullness of what his suffering meant. We understand the beauty of how and why he suffered to save us from our sins, but we neglect the rest of the story. Christianity says the suffering of the cross was not only about God's will or his plan to save us, but it also says something about his nature, about who God is. The suffering of Jesus for our sake is not just something he did. It tells us who God is. And again, all of this should cause us to sit up and take notice that the heart of Christianity is not a distant God, but is a close God that put on flesh for our sake. And so the most important question that we have to process through, that our children have to process through, is what do we do with Jesus? What do we do with Jesus? Was, was he just a good teacher? Was he just a moral, upstanding model for us? Or was he who he actually said he was? The son of man, the ancient of days. C.S. Lewis challenges us that we have to step back and we have to answer the question, either he was the Lord, he was who he says he was, or he was a lunatic, raving madman, or he was just a liar. The truth is you have to decide. You have to decide who you understand Christ to be. Let me pray for you, and then we'll respond here with a, our own hymn of praise before God here about who Christ is to us. With all of our eyes closed and our heads bowed, I just want to ask maybe one or two questions here. How have you misunderstood who God is? Maybe in your mind and in your heart, you've always understood or experienced God to be someone who is pressing his thumb down on you or with his arms crossed is disappointed with you, is waiting for you to screw up again. Maybe you've experienced him as an oppressor. How have you experienced and how have you thought about God and then how does the dwelling of God through the, the person of Christ, how does it cause you to rethink who God is. And then I would maybe just challenge you that you would, in prayer, maybe say, God, I've thought of you this way. But Jesus seems to be speaking something else. Help me to know you like Jesus wants me to know you. Because I gotta tell you, I've been 41 years old. I've been following God for 35 years. 
And even now, my thoughts about God can be off. And Christ invites us to rethink who God is because of who he is. Would you, would you just ask Jesus to recalibrate your understanding of who God is in light of that? And that can happen in these next three seconds or this next three minutes as we sing this song together. I believe God will honor those kinds of prayers that seek him. God, we do seek you. We want to understand you more fully. God, help us to live with boldness with those around us who would speak their skepticism about who you are and just be able to point them to, to who you are, who you say you are and who you promise to be. Thank you that Jesus came to shatter all of our misconceptions and redefine who you are. We love you, God. We praise you. We pray this in Christ's name.